0: Pray that as the word of God is open it be a blessing to you and, and to all of us that are here. Let's go first of all in our Bibles please to Matthew, a very well-known verse to us, Matthew chapter 18. And just because of the duration of the sessions, we're going to pause partway through and we'll stand to sing a few verses of a hymn. Maybe, uh, maybe Joellen will do you all a favor and turn my mic off while that's happening. <laughs> you have to draw the limit of what you're willing to do in front of a crowd. Matthew chapter 18. So, in our first session together on the subject of relevance, I want to talk about being relevant to Christ, as was mentioned. And by that, I simply mean how does a local church uphold the preeminence of Christ? Christ is Lord that may sound a little bit theoretical perhaps but we'll see that this truth is very practical and can transform assembly testimony so our well known verse Matthew chapter 18 verse 20 and I'm reading from the New King James today tomorrow Matthew chapter 18 verse 20 for where two or three are gathered together in my name I am there in the midst of them quite an amazing verse, really. I know we say it so much, sometimes we lose the significance of it, but a very powerful verse nonetheless. Over, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Just to catch a very interesting possibility. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. verse 24 but if all prophesy 1 Corinthians 14 verse 24 but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in he is convinced by all he is convicted by all and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed and so Falling down on his face. He will worship God and report that God is truly among you Report that God is truly among you quite a possibility I've read to you the truth and the consequence just now of a Christ-centered gathering in Matthew chapter 18 the Lord himself is teaching his Disciples and he's giving to them the embryonic truth if you will of gathering as a local church And our gatherings should be organized as well around the exaltation of His name. We often quote the verse, but sometimes forget to implement the teaching of it. I do remember a number of years ago being shocked when an Irish preacher told me that you can't just put Matthew chapter 18 on the wall of your hall and expect the Lord Jesus Christ to show up. In other words, it's not just like it's a lucky rabbit's foot that we rub in order to get the Lord Jesus to come to our meetings. This is a very practical verse that must be carried out in shoe leather and worked out in our gatherings. A verse to be, or a truth to be, integrated into the, and woven into the fabric of every local church, not just as an ideal, but as a reality. Gathering to the name of the Lord Jesus and Him there meeting with us. And I believe that the outcome of that, or the consequence of that, is what we've read together in First Corinthians chapter 14. And of course, the, the apostle here as he's writing this, he's just giving to them a hypothetical situation, but I take it that it's a possible situation. You have believers gathered to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and instead of doing so in a self-promoting way, which is what he's concerned with in First Corinthians 14, their use of their gifts and their own devotion and their loyalty all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that milieu, the unsurprising outcome is that someone from outside the gathering, either an unbeliever or perhaps a believer who has not learned much about assembly truth, someone from outside the gathering comes in and is confronted with the tangible presence of God. They sense that God is there. And consequently, he falls on his face and he worships God and he reports that God is truly among you. So here's where we very quickly go from theory to challenge. If an unbeliever or an uninformed person walked into your assembly today, would they have this reaction? Would they have this reaction? Would they confess that Christ is here? that God is among you. And so, in all fairness, don't be overly self-critical on this. I'm encouraged when I hear testimonies often or typically from first-generation Christians, and they say things like, I saw that these people, that they had something that I didn't have. And that's evidence, that is evidence of the presence of Jesus Christ in the gathering. That's evidence of Matthew 18, 20 actually happening, actually being carried out there in the gathering. But you know, if someone walks in, as we're droning our way through happy people, they're not going to sense it so much, are they? The evidence of Christ being there is... Now you know why they're going to shut my mic off. The evidence of Christ... Okay, you laughed a bit too hard there. The evidence of Christ's presence is not so vivid, it's not so real. Are people sold? Are they sold on the reality of Jesus Christ in our gathering when they come and observe? What if if the experience of knowing that God was among his people was ordinary and not extraordinary, not exceptional? If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that when the Lord Jesus Christ, when he called out a people for himself, the one thing that he clearly wanted to do is he wanted to go and to dwell with them. You see it at first in Exodus chapter 25, when the instructions are being given for the sanctuary, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And then in the tabernacle, there is no doubt about the obvious presence of the Lord amongst his people. And the book of Exodus closes with these words, that the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of the house of Israel through all their journeys. And that same cloud and that same pillar of fire became something known even to the nations. Round about, we see that in Numbers 14, as evidence of the almighty God dwelling with and leading his people. A clear, ordinary sense of the presence of God. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon declares the temple... Uh, to the Lord, or dedicates rather, the temple to the Lord, and you have something similar. There the glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord. And part of Solomon's prayer along with that as he dedicates the temple is actually with regards to the stranger, and I'm just linking this to the uninformed person or the unbeliever coming in. And part of his prayer is that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name again local assembly testimony in its purest sense do they know that this is a place that is called by his name do they know that he is here so when you arrive then in matthew chapter 18 and verse 20 and a new covenant now is being established with a different way of gathering with things moving very far away from 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 the physical and very patterned to something being more built on a foundation on principle And he says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 then, that I want to gather here with you as you gather with me. There is this common theme. And it should have been entirely, and it probably was, entirely unsurprising to the disciples that the Lord Jesus wanted to gather with his people. It's the same idea of a place that bears testimony to his name. And that is the point of the local church. The local church. A place for the Lord Jesus Christ to meet with his people and be exalted before the world that's around so then if we're not meeting with him and if he is not preeminent here then really we're missing the point of doing church (coughs) and why we've gathered as a local assembly it is all about him and this brings us to the issue of relevance of loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and exalting him If we are seriously concerned with our pursuit of His preeminence, then we have to really scrutinize this own matter of loyalty. What is my loyalty like to the Lord Jesus Christ? And one of the challenges in in this area is that we claim to be loyal to Christ, but we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots personally and corporately. We do things that get in the way of this simple goal of Him meeting with us, and of Him being exalted. And those blind spots make our efforts to gather to the Lord Jesus Christ, less and less relevant to the Lord Jesus Christ. They can get in the way. And this is a little bit difficult to unpack, so just follow me through here. Because there's such a subtle and nuanced distinction between my loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and my loyalty to my own beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ. And my beliefs about his assembly and so one of the most common blind spots that I notice is our loyalty to a way of doing things we get comfortable and this way of doing things often gets in the way of our loyalty to Christ even in the form of loyalty to how we gather as assemblies and for myself, as a 40-something-year-old, I stand between an older generation and a younger generation. And in both places, I see some wonderful things. And I also see, see some unhelpful things, some, some concerning extremes, if you will, that are emerging in assemblies. On the older generation's side, a refusal to consider the challenge of relevance in 2019 and you are upholding the gospel hall standard of assembly distinctiveness as you have done and have been taught to do from a very young age and you've done so very consistently but in so doing in in the loyalty to the way of gathering for some reason young people young families they're leaving your assemblies and no new souls are being added And on the other side, in the younger generation, I get concerned when I see a younger generation vilifying the older generation. They're not the bad guys. They're not the bad guys. We're all facing the same challenges of the flesh. The way that we like to do things versus asking, how does Christ like to do things, and so on. And the calls for change coming from the younger generation are often very personal, very subjective almost given mostly from the, why can't we do this, whatever this might be perspective, instead of taking those ideas, those suggestions, those framing, those thoughts, and really putting them in the context of exalting the Lord Jesus in 2019 and asking what he wants. And I think the problem with both of these approaches, the common problem, is the absence of the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ as our number one priority. The absence of owning Christ as Lord in our practice. I don't hear in these arguments Lordship as a driving motivation, as a deep conviction. And along with that there is the struggle to have our gatherings function how I want it, or how our desires are, rather than in pursuit of the Lord's desires. And both parties are complicit in this error. So the arguments then, between them, they go back and they go forth, and in, in those arguments is the absence of Jesus Christ as Lord. And we talk then about preferences as to how our assemblies are run, and we have a preference about how local outreach is conducted, and we all have ideas about who has the better concept of what we should wear to meeting. Whether being casual in our prayer language is better than being formal in our prayer language, and why my translation maybe is better than your <laughs> translation, and so on and so forth, we go back and forth, mostly on issues, mostly on issues that the Bible is not explicit on, doesn't give us explicit guidance on. And again, what is lost in this debate and the de- the declension that comes from it is a faithful commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, to His Lordship. And I don't hear people so much asking, what is it that He prefers? What does He want in all of this? What is it that clearly does not matter to Him? What is somewhat important to Him? What is very important to Him? The nuancing of even the value that Christ places on things. And so then instead of being united in our desire to maximize the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ in our gatherings, we are becoming more and more entrenched in our own positions and in the pursuit of of our own goals. This is a problem. It's a problem. I do sincerely believe today that if we were to make His glory our top priority, that we wouldn't be seeing this generational divide. Remember the point of the local church is for the Lord to meet with his people and to be exalted before the world around. And so where I want to begin challenging us all today is on this matter of loyalty. Should your loyalty, should your loyalty first and foremost be to the practice of assembly truth as you know it, or should it be to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll tell you again what I see. That Many, particularly, I'm, I want to very respectfully challenge the older generation again. You have lived your life more faithfully and for longer and for more years than I have. And I bow to your gray hairs. I do. I do. But if you're gathered to a way of doing church, and you value that more than you value Jesus Christ, then our future is not looking good. It's gonna be a problem. And some of the younger ones, and I respect your energy and your zeal, and you want to gather to a way of doing church too, but where's that visible consideration or the audible testimony to your desire to follow, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think division is happening because we've forgotten about loyalty to him. And here's the thing that loyalty in both generations When we return to this and we make him Lord again of this whole matter and the issues that we're facing, it gives everybody permission to take a a step back and just look at how we're doing everything and ask the question, what does the Lord think of this? Not what do you think versus what I think, or who has the louder voice in this argument, or who has the most leverage, but what does the Lord Jesus Christ think in all of this? And when we return to this fundamental principle and to gathering to his name, to understanding that it's his house, it actually gives to each assembly the permission to best apply the truth of gathering to his name in a nuanced, in a customized fashion, if you will, to the neighborhood, to the culture that you find yourselves in. And for an older generation, I think loyalty to Christ as a basis for change should likely will help you feel much safer about change than change just happening on the basis of personal preference. Loyalty to Christ. But you know, even on that issue of loyalty to Christ, we, we have a way of getting in the way of things sometimes. We so often do this. And where I see people misusing the idea of loyalty to Jesus Christ is when they say things like, My savior is king of kings and lord of lords and I will always teach younger believers that his presence demands that the assembly do xyz whatever that might be (coughs) and really that's again just my own idea of what God wants I usually hear that when we're talking about reverence and then we require everyone to comply with this standard that we choose as humans but here's the challenge here's the problem in this line of reasoning it links the glory and the preeminence of Jesus Christ with certain prescriptive behaviors. And that's the way we've been taught to do things for many years. It's logical. It's logical to do that. And it seems true to do that. It seems to be Christ honoring when we first look at it because we framed it in the context of his preeminence. But it is deeply flawed. It's flawed. Because those prescriptive requirements they come from humans and they don't come from Jesus Christ. That line or this line of teaching is bold enough to claim that we know better than God what He wants from us. And so we add to what the Word of God says, justifying it by pointing it to Christ. And yet, is that not, is that not the same sin that started us all off in the Garden of Eden? You shall be as gods. Knowing good and evil. We claim to know what is right and wrong about things that God does not declare to be right or wrong. Yeah, Adam. God wasn't clear. Why don't you start making choices for him? Why don't you start making laws for him? And we fall into that same original sin. Even as believers, we're doing the same thing. And so a lot of... Let me rephrase that. Some of what passes, too much of what passes... I'll put it that way too much of what passes for assembly truth or assembly distinctiveness or assembly practice is nothing more than the sin of us telling God what is best for him this is serious there's a word for this it's religion it's religion us telling God what is best for him and for too many years we've held to this idea that there is some prescriptive rigid Very detailed pattern for gathering that keeps all assemblies very much homogenous with one another. But you know when God, when God, we're going back to this verse now, when He describes the local assembly in picture form, He chooses things like building, or house, or tilled field, or flock, or a body. And why is He using these pictures? Well, just think about the first century. It would be very unlikely for any two buildings to be the same in the first century. Think about the idea of the house. I doubt that there are two families in this room living in an absolutely identical house. Yeah, there are common features of a kitchen and a washroom and, and at least one bedroom and a family room and so on. But beyond that, it's very individualized. And I live in farm country now on the prairie. And I can tell you that there's no two tilled fields that look the same. And I can tell you that there are no two shop, uh, flocks of sheep that look the same. And there are no two human bodies in this world that are identical. Although we have common parts. We have common parts. So where then did this idea come from? That every assembly has to be Identical that has to look exactly the same. Now there's a a great deal of cultural and interpretive elasticity programmed into the design of the truth in scriptures. And as long as you have believers who are committed to loyalty to Christ, and committed to searching the Word of God in honesty, in openness, with the Spirit of God guiding them, That freedom of expression and that implementation carried out in the fear of God is something that we need to defend, that we need to hold on to. Because even in that, ultimately that is the defense of the Gospel. That we don't justify ourselves and we don't make ourselves better than other believers by virtue of the works that we do. All of our justification is found in Jesus Christ. And so even the matter of practice comes back to such fundamental issues. And this means that assemblies then ought to be able to change as is needed even from generation to generation as dynamic living organizations responsible only to their risen head. But this return to unity to bring the generations back together, it's only going to come with the return of the pursuit of the glory of our head, Jesus Christ, Him as Lord. It's the only way. When we don't pursue that and when we fall into habit, we justify what we do by saying things like, well, this is what we've always done. Or we say, can you imagine the fact we'd get from other assemblies if we allowed that? Or we say, what would the preachers think? Or we We say say things like, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. And all of those statements indicate Loyalty to a form of doing things, rather than loyalty to the person of Christ. It doesn't matter how we sugarcoat the issue, or whether we couch it in spiritual language, unless the values that guide our assemblies are directly derived from the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to reduce ourselves to just practicing the traditions of men. And then an excessive commitment to that tradition, or to that form, or to exert a set of religious practices, That earns the title of formalism, formalism again, even if we brand it as loyalty to Christ. Formalism is not loyalty to Christ if Christ does not require that form of us. And on top of that, we have even the fact that whatever is not of faith, whatever is not done depending upon him, whatever is done depending on ourselves to make ourselves better, whatever is not of faith is sin. So that we're not then now just discussing some kind of neutral window dressing kind of issues. Things that don't matter. But the overcommitment and the loyalty to this way of doing things has actually taken us much farther from God than we think. And it's time to turn back. Because this is how we become irrelevant to Christ. All the while telling ourselves that we are the kind of church who gathers most biblically this world. May God have mercy on us. We get comfortable with a way of doing things, don't we? And we justify it to ourselves. But when we keep practicing the same thing without a fresh examination of the word of God, and without an overriding loyalty to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, then our loyalty actually deteriorates it's just a loyalty to the form of what we're doing, not to the person behind it all, or in the midst of it all. And this, in its most innocent form, is just ignorance, It's just ignorance. But in its worst form is the sin of legalism. And what we need is to be Berean in our search for truth, and examine how to best implement the truth of God's word in our own assemblies. The Bereans in the Book of the Acts, they were known for being fair-minded, Not for being rigid. They were recognized for receiving the Word of God with readiness, not for criticizing preachers. They were reputed to search out the scriptures daily, not just at conference time. And as a result, if you look at what happened because they followed that way of of living and, and organizing themselves for Christ, God was saving souls in Berea and their assembly was growing and the Lord Jesus Christ was being exalted now we don't have to scrounge around much to try to conjure up what it really means to be loyal to Christ because he told us himself in John's Gospel and he said there in in chapter 8 verses 31 and 32 that the Lord Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free yeah the the Bereans understood this kind of loyalty they understood how to maintain a fresh sense of being relevant to Christ they knew they would get there by abiding in his word and so if you're here today with an exercise for your local assembly and and it's wonderful if you are that is such a blessing and a desire that only God could put in your heart keep honoring that But if you want to be a relevant church, you're going to have to, in an individual way, and corporately as a group, devote yourselves to the study of God's Word, not with the purpose of proving that you're already right, but to constantly come before God with a blank page, and to ask Him to teach you about how to live your Christian life, and about how to best exalt Him in the practice and function of the assembly, and how to live Christ before your family, and in your workplace, and at school, and at home. Listen to the words of Christ again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This mark of true discipleship is that of searching his word and obeying it. Searching his word and obeying it. And just because of the blind spots that we can develop, I'd like to uh, go with you next into the book of Colossians. There are three things there. In Colossians, remember, it talks about going to our head, or pointing towards our head, the Lord Jesus. It's very apropos for our subject today. So we're going to start in chapter 2 in a moment, here in verse 1. But again, I think that Colossians is particularly pertinent to our study. Because the, the core problem that the Apostle is addressing at Colossae, and the assembly here is found in verse 19, is that they were not holding fast to the head. In other words, they were on their way towards becoming irrelevant to Christ. And their loyalty was shifting. They were turning away from him. I mean, don't forget, too, that this is an assembly that's near Laodicea. Perhaps struggling with the same issue of lukewarmness, to some extent, or the early signs of those issues. And so he's going to take up here in in chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, as we'll see three different problems. One is the problem of philosophy. It sounds... High polluting, but it's immensely practical as well. Legalism is the second problem. Carnality is the third. So let's just read first of all for the first problem in chapter two, verses one to 10. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God both of the Father and of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge now this I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words that's the challenge here in this section highlighted for us in verse 4 according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now for this idea of philosophy, we have in verse 8 this word philosophy. Just think of that simply as our human ideas. Presented as truth. That's what philosophy is our human ideas Presented as truth and in the first three verses Paul tells us that he is deeply concerned for these believers You see that right off the bat in this chapter and what is his concern there? His his concern is that they may come to loving unity on the basis of recognizing that Christ is the source of all wisdom So here we have this theme in Scripture again, and that they might understand that there are no sources of truth outside of the Godhead. All truth belongs to God. Both truth that is revealed in special revelation in the Word of God, and truth that is revealed in general revelation. Truth that is discovered through the study of the many facets of creation. All that truth belongs to God. And here's his point then in verse two, that your hearts will be encouraged and they will be knit together in love as a group when you all see that Christ is the ultimate source of truth, it's pointing to him. And like I said, we mess this up when we say things like we believe and we assert our own truth that is not found in divine revelation. And when we do that, we bring our own philosophy to the table and then when that philosophy is established as a standard of practice for God's people to conduct themselves by, when we do that, we take away from our head, we take away from Christ. Because it's arbitrary. And it leads to disunity. And it leads to discouragement. And it leads to the erosion of love between believers. That's why this is not just a trifling matter. Or if we talk about assembly truth as something that we hold, that we own, that belongs to us, then really we're also taking the place of Christ. It's His truth, not ours. We are not the source of truth. He is the source of truth. Or when we speak of assembly distinctiveness, we've lost sight of the fact that the purpose of an assembly is to make Christ distinct, not ourselves. And so we need to then repent of these subtle but flawed and practical ways of thinking, and to reorient ourselves to our head, our Lord Jesus Christ. But just keep coming with me down now, Uh, the chapter, verse 4, you have, or you note there that one of the features of this kind of philosophy in verse 4 is that it is presented in very persuasive language, and that's true enough, but it doesn't make the philosophy (coughs) true. Just because it's presented with persuasion, or just because we might be persuaded by something that we hear, it does not necessarily make it true. Even for what I am saying to you today, it must be held up against the Word of God. But these philosophers, or the people bringing the philosophy now into Colossae, they were very believable. They were convincing. But believability is not the same as truth. The source of the truth, It must be examined in order to establish its veracity. And so then in verse 5, he points to the source. He takes us back to what the source is. It's Christ and their faith in Christ. This is what's key. That's the connection to the head. And in verse 6, he reminds them that they started by receiving Christ. And now they should continue to walk in Christ. In other words, the faith and the grace that you were saved through Keep now walking by that faith and keep now living in that grace. Don't add philosophy to it. And again, just observe with me the Lordship of Christ here in this passage. We come into our salvation, accepting His Lordship, His supreme authority in our lives. We bow to that. And now Paul says, yes, you came through the door that way. You were saved that way, but keep walking that way. Keep walking that way and keep your eyes on on Him. Continue to maintain His Lordship as your ultimate authority. So then you come to verse seven about being rooted and built up. All of the development then, all the growth of your Christian life is going to be built or ought to be built on the same foundation for which you were saved. Mm -hmm. Are you rooted in Christ? Then be built up in Him. Were you established in Him? then be taught in Him. So this now helps us to understand that for my personal life or from our conduct as an assembly, it is first and foremost the pleasure and the desire of Jesus Christ that must be consulted. And we cannot emphasize this enough, that we can only be made complete in Him. It's the only way we It's so native to all of us, and it's in my heart, as much as the next person's, that we want to find a way to make ourselves complete in Christ, a way within ourselves, but we can only find this in Christ. We must maintain that perspective. So we are called then, as a result of that, in verse eight, we're called to push back, beware, to push back on all other claims, to refute, to deny, Any persuasion that finds its source in anything other than Jesus Christ. If it's not according to Christ, if he is not the source, then that philosophy is of no value. It's of no value. And why is it that we can write off that philosophy so clearly, other than the fact that we're told to here? Verse 9, the reason behind the reason. It's because in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily we can't add to Christ we can't improve on Christ so we need to beware of the idea that says that we can create a greater Christianity than what comes through the simplicity of faith in Christ indeed as verse 10 says and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and all power, or you're filled up in Him, complete or filled up in Him. We cannot get more complete, more full, and we cannot begin to complete or to fill ourselves through philosophy, through legalism, through formalism, through our ideas. It must come from the source.
1: And so dear child of God, please
0: let this truth sink down deep into your heart. Please teach it to your children while they're young. Model it for them. Teach it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Teach it in your Sunday school classes. Teach it to your youth group. You are complete in Him. And He is the only source of truth. And then teach them that the way they received Him, and that is through faith, that that's how they need to walk in Him and by grace. And this is how we stay relevant to Jesus Christ. Relevance is never going to be improved upon or made more relevant by adding human philosophy into it It's only through the truth that comes from Jesus Christ and our faith in him And then we come in verse 11 now to the pitfall the the second pitfall the pitfall of legalism Uh, Let's again just take a moment to read these verses together and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you, in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbaths, or or sabbaths rather, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore if you died with Christ, from the basic principles of the world, Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Philosophy and its empty deceit are not the only pitfall. We also have this pitfall of legalism. And legalism very simply is me trying to make myself a better Christian, or trying to make my assembly a better group of Christians, through works rather than through That's how legalism gets worked out in our lives. Basically, you can think of philosophy as the brains. It's giving you the ideas, the thoughts. And legalism is the brawn, or the muscle. One gives you the idea of what is better. The other acts as the enforcer. Legalism is the enforcer. So let's just take this passage again and, and just take it piece by piece here. The first thing that we learn in verses 11-15 to 15 to help us avoid this pitfall of legalism is that Christ has triumphed over sin. He has already had the victory. Everything about us that ever made us unacceptable to God and unworthy and undeserving of his blessing, all of that has been removed from us. It's been cut off. It's been put off. That's verse 11. And it's been buried as well, so it's not coming back. That's verse 12 and we have been born again, that's verse 13, with all accusations erased through the cross, that's verse 14, and even our accusers have been silenced, verse 15. The work of Christ is an all-inclusive package. It doesn't need the brains of philosophy added to it, nor does it need the brawn of legalism added, in order to make believers more spiritual, nor to make assemblies more Christ-centered. So then the question should be, if everything that I need to be saved is provided for in Christ, and if I cannot even make myself a better Christian by my own works or by my law, then how am I going to grow? How do I improve? What do I do? How am I going to thrive as a Christian? And immediately the flesh here wants to jump back in and provide our own efforts, our own ways of becoming better people. But that's not how it's to be done. Drop your eye now to verse... 16-19. to And here we learn that Christ has triumphed over sin, and now He is the one who nourishes and who feeds us. The substance is of Christ. The end of verse 17 is where it says that. He not only gives us life, but He sustains and He helps us grow in our Christian life. But in this assembly back in Colossae, there were legalistic believers, and they were imposing their views on others. And they were telling them, you can't eat that, and you can't drink that, and you need to follow that day, and you can't follow that day over there, you can't celebrate that holiday. And these were prohibitions that these legalistic people were placing upon them. They were prohibitions that the scripture did not place upon God's people. They made them up themselves. And they were requiring them to obey these things. And so this is now, this gives us an idea of what legalism does. It prohibits things, it stops us from being able to do things, or it makes them impermissible, unpermissible. And also it requires things from us that are above and beyond the word of God. And it's given to us under the pretense that it'll make us more godly if we do it. It'll make you more godly if you do it. That's the lie that we're told. But even that, it's not content to to stop there. It will place those, legalism will place those requirements on others and then judge them for not complying. So you'll get shamed if you don't meet the standard. And the purpose of this judging in verse 16 is shown to us it's to make the believers feel less than others or to feel incomplete, like they were not doing well. And that would help those believers, or the idea it wouldn't help them, but. That's the twisted purpose of it, is to try to help them to ensure their compliance to the legalistic terms. So this is how this is working now. And so now there's a very clear directive that's given to the believer. This is a command an instruction for us in verse 16. Let no one judge you. Let no one judge you. That is a command. We are to refuse the condemnation of legalistic people. Why? Why is that? Because accepting their legalistic requirements means that we also must accept the insufficiency of the work of Christ. Christ wasn't enough, so I better do what you're saying I need to do too. And I hope the significance of this is not lost on us. Again, legalism is not just tradition gone a little too far. It's not just the little brother, the pesky little brother of godly habits. Legalism is a destructive brute who fundamentally undermines the work of Christ. Legalism is anathema. It should be refuted and refused and cursed wherever it rears its ugly head. Legalism is just a shadow. Whereas, as we're told in verse 17, the substance, the real thing is of Christ. So we're told, do not let anyone judge you. And then there's another command in verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. The ASV uh, translates that, let no one disqualify you. Now if you watch the language the language of uh, legalistic people, and I, in, for a good part of my life, would have been defined in that category too. So I am a person that is still in recovery from this sin. It comes back so easy. There's a little Pharisee in all of our hearts, and I'm only too familiar with the one in mine. But when you, li- when, you, when you listen to the language of legalistic people carefully, there is a distinct attempt to marginalize, to dismiss others who disagree with them. Disqualifying other people is evidence of legalism. That's how you know, one of the ways you know it's there. And verse 18 points out to us that they do this through a toxic blend of false humility and deluded or delusional arrogance. Those are the ingredients. But it is when you get to verse 19 that you see the most severe condemnation. They are not holding fast to the head. That's where the the deepest issue lies. Legalism decapitates the local church. Legalism decapitates the local church. They're not holding to the head. It decapitates the Christian. It removes us from our Savior. We lose our capital H, head, when we're hit by legalism. And so it doesn't matter how well you dress up legalism. It always betrays and it always denies the head. It's the body saying we don't need Christ. We have a better way of living the Christian life. And so I want to challenge every believer here today to do battle with legalism, to refute it, to condemn it, to refuse to accept the judgment of legalism, to refuse to be cheated out of relationship with Christ because of it. And then again Paul, in his gentle, persistent way, he points us back then again to the source. Hold fast to the head, he says, from whom the whole body, from whom all the body, nourished and, being jo- and, and, being, and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. That's how the increase comes. That's how the growth comes, from God. And let us always remember that legalism can never create Christian growth. The body grows and is nourished by our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are loyal to him and we are relevant to him when we look to him in faith for our Christian growth and for our sanctification when we see him as our source of life.
1: And then as we come down
0: near to the end of chapter uh, 2, in verse 20, why, the question is, why submit then to legalism? That's what the apostle's saying, why submit to this? Why do this? Remember our definition, legalism is trying to make myself a better Christian, or my assembly a better group of Christians, through works, rather than through grace. So if Christ then has already triumphed over sin, and if He is now nourishing our growth as believers, Why would you turn again to legalism, to accomplish what Christ is already doing? Why attempt to duplicate what he has already done? Why when he has already provided the food, when he already nourishes us, would we bring our own lunch to the table of sanctification? So he's saying in verse 20 and verse 21 then, Do not subject yourselves again to the commandments and doctrines of man, don't go back to that. Don't allow yourselves to be put underneath that. And he acknowledges then in verse 23 that these things may look wise to begin with. And I think that's one of the reasons why we so easily fall into this trap. Often legalistic notions look or sound wise. But as verse 23 tells us, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so please understand that you'll never make yourself a better Christian. And you'll never make your assembly a better assembly through the commandments And the doctrines of men. It's not possible. The flesh cannot please God. The flesh cannot even stop itself from indulging in sin. The flesh has nothing to add to the work of Christ, and in fact it takes away from His work. And that's why in the next section the Apostle now calls for the execution of that flesh. And that's chapter 3 verse 1 to 11. So again let's pause to read this together. If then you were raised with Christ, this is the pitfall now of carnality. If you then were, if you then, if, sorry, I'm gonna slow down and do this right the fourth time. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you, will, you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death, that's the execution. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which You yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. According to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So we have these these two bad guys, philosophy, the brains, legalism, the braun. There's actually a triad of bad guys. There's three bad guys you gotta watch out for. Philosophy is the brains, legalism is the muscle, flesh, the flesh is the crime boss. The crime boss. His only aim is what he can get out of it, self-gratification, self-preservation. The flesh is a bad egg, a bad egg. And carnality is just living life for me, for my own pleasure, for my own interests. And that carnal life comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but all forms of carnality have this one common aspect, this common shortcoming, the absence of loyalty to Christ. And to his word. It also has the problem of breeding strife and conflict in an assembly. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 which uh, di- which carnality or which strife rather than distracts the local assembly from following Christ. And We see the Corinthian assemblies again with with regards to the carnality that was there this crime boss of the triad it was creating a partisan atmosphere in that assembly. And so the flesh is really then something that we need to deal with. So as you now are coming down to chapter 3 in Colossians and you're reading this letter that the, the Apostle has written. You've learned that there's no philosophy that's going to make you a better Christian. And you've learned that there are no works of the law that will make you a better Christian. And now you're learning that there are no works of the flesh that will make you a better Christian. So again we ask the question, how are we to grow in Christ? In Addition to what we've already learned well that gives us four commandments here in this passage four commandments The first one is to seek those things which are above that's in verse 1 of chapter 3 seek those things which are above and That command to seek the things which are above is grounded in the reality of Christ's exaltation You see that in the phrase in verse 1 where it says where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God so whereas carnalism and Legalism and philosophy are all very horizontal and very much things that distract us in this world The pursuit of the priorities of Jesus Christ calls us to lift our eyes To the man seated at the right hand of God And I'm going to suggest to you that this offers to us a default spiritual posture for the believer so instead of looking around me to try to find answers to the questions of life and solutions for the challenges in our assemblies. Instead of looking to earthly wisdom for all of the concerns of our souls, we are called to lift our eyes and look to our risen head. We're called to look where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's an orientation of soul, an attitude, but it's also a way of life. And it's a relationship of dependence upon Christ and coming before him both inquisitively inquisitively, and in faith, trusting that he actually, that he's sincerely and deeply interested in guiding us, that he wants to respond to us in this way. And this, by the way, is also the appropriate attitude for overseers, when we're guiding the flock of God. This is where we find permission to ignore pressure, even from other assemblies, maybe, that want us to adhere to biblically unsubstantiated practices, It's permission to faithfully pursue the mind of Christ above all other loyalties and to apply his mind to the form and the function of the assembly that we serve, that we find ourselves in. So the first command, seek those things which are above. The second command is, sounds very similar, but it's a little different. Set your mind on things above. That's verse 2 and the section from 2 to 4. If you're reading verse 2 and you're King James, I'll just nudge you towards your margin. Uh, a more helpful translation may be to set your mind on things above, not your affection on things above. You see, in the first command you have the exhortation to seek or to strive after, or to earnestly desire the things which are above. That's about motivating our wills to pursue those things. But in the second command the focus is on the mind. Set your mind on things which are above. And all of us are faced with this challenge of disciplining our brains to focus on the right things, to bring our attention to the right things. This is why we need the renewing of our minds. We're now taking the the gray matter that God has given us, and we're repeatedly bringing the focus back on the things which are above, as we see them written in His Word. And so to do this properly, we need to understand which things are above and which things are on the earth. This is the second verse now. The things on above, not on things on earth, so we know we have our mind on the right things. And so very simply, if you drop your eye down to verse 5, you have the list of the things that are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inappropriate passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And this list of sins, which I won't go into, it encompasses the dysfunctional, immoral pursuit of relational wholeness. Trying to fill a gap in our hearts. (coughs) Trying to make ourselves complete, relationally. And that can only be found fully in Christ, first and foremost, and then in healthy, functional relationships with others. So we're to lift our minds away from these things that will never satisfy. This is now John chapter 4 and the woman at the well, pursuing a lifetime of trying to fill her heart's need in broken relationships and now finding it met in Christ. You have more of the things on the earth that we're to turn our minds away from in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, and do not lie to one another. And interestingly enough, this list of sins is also particularly destructive to relationships. So we're to pull our minds away from the immoral, destructive behaviors, and we're to set them on things above. So we got an idea of now of what we're supposed to pull our minds away from, and we're to pull them towards the things that are above. What are those things that are above? And I think we can safely assume that those are the opposite behaviors that we didn't read about, but they're in verses 12 to 14. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and so on. There's forgiveness, there's love, there's peace ruling in our heart, there's thankfulness, there's the word of Christ dwelling richly in all wisdom, there's songs. there's psalms, there's hymns, there's grace in our hearts, and we're doing it all to the name of the Lord Jesus. Now these are the things that we are to bring our minds to bear on, that we are to put our minds upon. Interesting, enough, these are relational as well, but they're positive, they build relationships instead of tearing them down in verses 12 to 14. And you know, this is where entire assemblies, because of the flesh that's within us, entire assemblies can actually become toxic even, when one group really has its mind set on the things on the earth. Even to the point, like you see in the Corinthian church, where they were endorsing and they were practicing, or protecting rather, immoral behavior. And in that context, you also see there a party spirit again in conflict between believers, the very same behaviors that you have described here. Or sometimes our carnality can just be more individualistic. We just become very difficult as individual believers. And so part of what verse 2 is then really forcing us to face up with, is that you cannot have both Christ and your sin. You can't have your mind fully on the things on the earth, and fully on the things which are above. We're forced to choose between them. It's a very black and white commandment. Set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. And so what we're being called to is to be to be setting our minds on these things above in order to promote that loyalty to Christ first in our minds and secondly that will overflow to our relationships with other believers. Loyalty to Christ calls us to change how we relate to sin and how we relate to other believers and to other people as well. That's the second commandment to set our mind on things above. Third command, put to death your members. Therefore, put to get death your members which are on the earth. And we've already looked a little bit at verses 5 to 7, but again, note the black and white language, put to death. God is requiring us to execute, to mortify, to put to death these sinful behaviors in our lives. And how is it that we do this? How do we put these sins to death? You know, it seems like a, a fairly straightforward command. Uh, But I know for myself, I've often struggled to figure out what does that actually mean? Like when you wake up on Monday morning and you want to mortify something, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I want to just give you three steps very quickly, just drawing uh, briefly from Romans 6. And by the way, you may not know this, but I was given permission to be a little flexible with the time, so I'm going to abuse that slightly. (laughs) But I know what they're making for supper, and it's worth waiting for. So just stay with me. First of all, you must know that you died with Christ. If you want to mortify the flesh, put the death of flesh, you must know first of all that you died with Christ. Really have that in your heart, in your mind. Many Christians don't really know. They don't really know that sin no longer controls them, that they're actually not obliged to click on that link, to follow that impulse. They don't realize that. And they don't actually have to, to pick up that donut or whatever, or pick up our, our smartphone and turn to that for some consolation when we're feeling anxious. We don't have to do those things. That's idolatry, by the way. We don't need to buy something in the mall to make us feel better about ourselves. We just need to know that when we died with Christ, we're no longer obliged to serve sin. That's the first part, small, but so beautiful. The second lovely aspect, or truth of mortifying the flesh, is that you can know this, but you have to act on this as well. So the second step then is to choose to yield your members to Christ, your body to Christ, that I belong to you, Lord, I'm yielding this to you. The knowledge that you're not obliged to sin must proceed, must move forward into a commitment then to serve Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to take the bad out of our lives, we have to fill it with something else. We need to pursue something better, to move towards Christ, to taste and see that the Lord is good and better indeed than our sin. That's the second part acting on the truth. And the third thing is, we have to look to the Spirit of God for help, to provide the resurrection power to sustain this transformation in our hearts and life. This is how believers grow, how they put to death the flesh and they become more godly. As Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8 verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a promise, you will live. And I hope we can all understand and embrace this today, that through the work of Jesus Christ, we have the potential to to, to lead a largely sin-free life here on earth. Not completely. We're all going to sin. But much less sinful than it would otherwise be, if we enter into the truth of these verses. And this is underscored again in the fourth and the final commandment that's given to us, to help us avoid carnal living, to help us avoid the flesh... In verses 8 to 11, we're commanded to put off the old man. So whereas in the third commandment, we are to put earthly things to death, in the fourth, we're to put earthly things off. It's kind of the idea of taking off old, grubby clothes, and then in verse 12 and following, which we aren't really going to get too far into, putting on new, clean garments. Again, it's very black and white. We're not wearing two kinds of garments. You put the old ones off, you put the new ones on. In the putting off here, we have sins that threaten brotherhood. They undermine community. They're corrosive to brotherly love. Your mouth cannot be guilty of the sins of verse 8, and at the same time your heart be closely knit with the people on the receiving end of those words. Our words matter very much. But another way, if you have problems with relationships or strife in the assembly, look for these sins. You'll find them. I won't unpack them more. We'll talk more about being relevant to one another in the next session. But just want to note that while these are sins that mark our old way of living, now that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus, we're also given a new way of relating to one another. A new way of relating. And in this observation lies the connection from what we've been studying for the past hour or so to what we'll be looking at after supper. So, we just looked at four commands that help us become less carnal and more spiritual. The final command is directed at how we relate to one another, and the Lord Jesus himself also said, By this we'll all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He said that in John 13, 35. So, one of the ways that we testify to the world around us, and this is the third session, That we are the disciples of Jesus Christ is by what we learn in the second session, by our love for one another. So if we're going to be relevant to one another, and if we're going to be relevant to the world around, we have to start here, with relevance to Christ. Loyalty to Christ. And we prove ourselves then to be his disciples by learning to love one another well. You may recall that I gave you another marker of the disciples of Christ earlier. That was John 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, You truly are my disciples. That is what we've been working on in this session. Looking at how we abide in his word by avoiding the pitfall of philosophy, the pitfall of legalism, the pitfall of carnality. The anti-spiritual triad. These three things, they take us away from loyalty to Christ and away from service to him. And so perhaps in some of our assemblies, I understand you're still getting some of your verses up here. Some of your assemblies you might have this verse on the wall. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. A gentle reminder, putting that on the wall does not mean he is there. Putting the name Gospel Hall on the outside of the building does not mean Christ is automatically present. What is it that brings his presence? What is it? Is the gathering of two or three to his name And those two or three are people who have been saved by grace through faith and now they are gathering with a devoted allegiance to him and they're seeking to live their lives by the same means through which they are saved by grace through faith it's a very simple formula where two or three are gathered together in my name there am i in the midst of them don't let the triad mess this up but then you might ask yourself, well, how is this group of Saints going to shape their gathering as an assembly? How will they conduct themselves? What will their meetings look like? What about their evangelism? And they will establish the how all that is going to come out and be seen by observing, by examining, by scrutinizing the Word of God to see what matters most to their Lord and Savior. They're concerned first and foremost With relevance to him that question must come relevance to Christ that must come before we ask the question of being relevant to what's around us Must be to Christ first of all and for those areas then Having examined the word of God and seeking to obey that as close as they understand it for areas where the Lord does not provide Explicit direction in the form of precepts or clear principles or sorry in the form of precepts They're next going to look for the Christ-centered principles to guide them the Christ-centered principles may be in the book of Acts that the early church went by. And beyond that, they're just going to hold very lightly simple, minimal traditions. Traditions that serve the people of God. We can't have zero traditions. It's not possible. We have to use a hymn book or we have to use a PowerPoint. It doesn't matter which. Either one is going to be a tradition. We have to have traditions. So we can't get to zero on those. But these are simple They're lightly held, they're minimal, and they serve the people of God, not the other way around. As the Acts Council, or the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, so aptly put it as they faced a similar question, they wrote, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than the necessary things. And so I hope that in the time that you've spent here so far, That you've got really, we've planted one big necessary thing, and that is loyalty to Christ. First and foremost, if we claim to be gathered to his name, then we must draw our character, our how, what it looks like, all of that must come from him. So may God give us grace as we seek to do this.